This is the Foot in the Box podcast for the week of Monday, May 23rd. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the A Foot in the Box podcast. My name is Peter Elliott. And I'm Paul Elliott, calling in virtual this week. Calling in virtual, huh? Yes, I'm uh, remote here in Chicago, just, uh, extending my weekend. I was uh, up in Wisconsin for a fishing trip. So now I am calling in from Brother Kevin's uh, dining room table, his apartment in Chicago. The phrase calling in virtual, it's a bit odd, wouldn't you say? Uh, you mean because you're always calling somewhere else? Yeah. Do you, when you're on the phone with other people, do you say that? Uh, I guess it's kind of a term that I've heard at work, like working virtually. Oh. Uh, where I picked it up. In the corporate world. Yes, uh, so you're in Chicago. I am back in Champaign. I am, uh, sitting in my normal office chair. Across the table is a chair, an empty chair with a pair of jeans on it, so... <laughs> Your presence has been replaced by a pair of jeans. Yeah, I'm actually uh, covering the uh, the White Sox game for the podcast tomorrow. They uh, have a doubleheader against the Indians that I'm excited to to watch with my wife Kate. Um, and it was a crazy good deal. Uh, it's not a typical like day night doubleheader, so uh, they're not like clearing up the stadium in between. You just buy one ticket and you need to go watch two games. So, and you've agreed between games to do some interviews for the podcast. Uh, I've agreed to consider it if uh, the right people are sitting around me. I think that's a promise uh, Promise for next week. Listeners, hold him to that. Uh, did the White Sox win today? Yes, they won 3-2. to two. That's a big win. Yeah, they've been scuffling. I think they lost two out of their last, or they only won two out of their last eight before today. And um, the Indians had actually tied them in the lost column for first place in the Central. Uh, our father is very down on the White Sox. I was home this weekend, and uh, he uh, was just yeah very down, especially on the offense. He is not a big Jerry Sands fan. Yeah, I don't know if too many Jerry Sands fans. Uh, he was hitting clean. Yeah, up, he was hitting cleanup on Saturday. Yeah, they uh, gave a break the day off today, so he's um, he's playing again today. Yeah, I, I'm still fairly optimistic that they'll make a move. With the money they have left over from the LaRoche retirement, I think they could get trade for an outfielder here in the next week or two. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, both Chicago teams uh, have had subpar weeks. Cubs to a lesser extent, but mm-hmm. they've. Uh, I saw they were four and six in their last ten, which is different than their typical seven and three or eight and two. Yeah, you can probably write off uh, any thoughts about. Uh... 116 wins or even 110 uh, baseball happens. And I think you're seeing, um, you know, injuries like Hayward went down. He's only out a few days. But uh, that and, like, Schwarber's injury and just really cuts into your depth. And so um, to win 117 games, you're going to need almost perfect health. And the Cubs have not had that. And, I mean, I think, like, other teams – Based on such a 
tricky game. Like other teams get hot, so the Giants are yeah they're on fire recently, and so you run into other teams that are good and playing really well at the same time. So mm-hmm. a lot of it's about when you when you face the team too. Yep. All right. Um, I don't have a Nelly fun fact this week. I forgot to do it. Um, we uh, we could just make. Do we know anything about Nelly outside of uh, what I've mentioned so far? Uh, I don't. Do you? All right. So I just googled Nelly fun facts because uh, we can't go a week without one. Um, he has three tattoos. Those are uh, located on his chest. Uh, on his right arm and one above his navel. So that's your that's your Nelly fun fact this week. I promise to do better uh, going forward. Uh, thanks to him for our intro song, Batter Up. Uh, some updates from the podcast that we've been covering lately. First is Cody Sudlack, uh, pitches for the University of Illinois. Paul and I have got to see him pitch a couple times this year. Uh, he is a junior and most likely headed to the Major League Draft this year. Uh, he pitched his final game as an Illini on Thursday night, lost one to nothing. Uh, he pitched all nine innings, gave up one run, and uh, for the season now, 101 innings pitched and 116 strikeouts, 2.49 ERA and a 1.09 WHIP. And um, Jim Callis, who is a MLB.com prospect writer said on Twitter that um, he thinks Sedlak is a uh, back end of the first round guy in the draft coming up in June here. Yeah, baseball is a crazy sport too. The that start we saw on Thursday, um, the only run he gave up was a, a home run, a shot to right field by a guy batting 195 for Michigan. Um, so just kind of a mm-hmm. that was like the only sadly hit ball all day. Yep, and Illinois uh, won two out of three against Michigan, but failed to make the Big Ten tournament because some other things uh, didn't go their way with other games. So Illinois' season is over, uh, and we probably will not talk about college baseball again uh, on the podcast. All right, uh, a couple other updates. The Reds' bullpen. Last week I shared that their streak of games giving up a run had ended. Uh, They they now have the record, um, but they... Uh, continue to struggle. So on Tuesday's game against the Indians in the fifth inning, uh, Steve Delabar relieves uh, Alfredo Simon, who is a terrible starting pitcher for the Reds, and Mm -hmm. Delabar uh, proceeds to walk in four consecutive runs before getting removed from the game. He did strike out Francisco Lindor before the walks, uh, but yeah, he walked in four runs, uh, so not good by the uh, by, the Reds bullpen. I wrote about this in uh, my column this week with Fangraphs. Um, did some research, and if you look at like every bullpen on like a single season basis, up to this point, the uh, the Reds statistically are the worst, have the worst bullpen, um, according to things like you know FIP and walks per nine innings and home runs per nine innings mm-hmm. um, since like ni- nineteen sixty one. So they're like historically, you know. Uh, objectively, the worst bullpen in the last 60 years. Mm-hmm. Another update, Matt Bush. He threw two more scoreless innings for the Rangers uh, this week after getting ejected from last Sunday's game, which we'll get to in a second here. But um, in his two outings this past week, 
he went two and one third innings and struck out four. So it seems like he's settling into, um, you know, pretty good reliever from his, uh, his results at double a and the major so far. You said we get into it in a minute, but I, I thought MLB did a good job of not suspending Bush. I just thought it was a, a good move kind of acknowledging that he was put in a terrible situation last Sunday for the brawl. Um, and he's already been through so much, um, but he just got out of but, prison. Yeah. See, I think I'd be, I'd be, they should have suspended him and they should have possibly banned him from baseball. You just get out of prison, almost kill a guy, and the the first thing you do when you get back is hit a guy intentionally with a baseball, throwing ninety five miles per hour. Wait, you're are you, you're being serious? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know, I I disagree. Um, you you that, said last week that they have the Rangers have a guy with him at all times. They don't trust him, yet they're giving they're allowing Bush to throw a baseball ninety five miles per hour which could easily kill someone if it hits a guy in the head and they allow him to intentionally hit somebody in the second game back from a, a prison sentence. I mean, I could maybe see suspending him, but I, you just said they should ban him. I, uh, it should be considered. I yeah, I think that's ridiculous. Uh, I think if you, if you look at it, like almost every major pitcher at some point in their career has been asked or – not asked, but has How to, many major league pitchers go to prison? Yeah, but I mean that's for that's totally. He didn't go to prison for like anger. He went to prison because he was alcohol, alcoholic and like couldn't control himself in situations. I don't. know. I just uh, I believe in second chances, and it sounds like you uh, you're holding it against him. No, this would be like a third chance. Yeah, I, I guess uh, agree to disagree. Yes couple other notes that I had from around baseball. The Indians are drawing 14,526 fans per game. I just watched the uh, Cleveland Sports 30 for 30 this past week and uh, just made me think about what a terrible uh, sports city Cleveland is. And uh, they are not supporting the Indians this year, even though the Indians are playing pretty good baseball. So there's a thing to watch. They're not really talked about as a team that could move from Cleveland because they've been there a long time. But... Uh, 14,000 fans per game is not good. Uh, they are, of course, last in baseball. Uh, How Cle- many people do you think were there uh, when you went last year for? Wasn't there a rain delay? Unless you guys uh, that's a good question. There's probably like 20, 25 because the Cubs were in town. Did you know that the Indians manager, uh, Terry Francona, has never finished below 500? Huh. That's a pretty good stat. Uh, Clayton Kershaw continues his dominance. Uh, I feel like Chris Sale and Arietta get a lot of uh, publicity, and rightfully so. They're both really good. But Kershaw, in uh, in 2016, through 70 innings, has walked four batters, has a .7 whip, uh, so less than uh, one walk or hit per innings pitched, uh, way less than one. And in May, specifically, in 33 innings, he has struck out 48 and walked one batter. Wow. Impressive yeah, stuff there. That's pretty darn good. Yep. Yeah. Then, one last thing I had is that the Orioles, I feel like are kind of known for hitting a lot of home runs. Going back to um, uh, what's the the manager Earl Weaver, he was a big fan of throwing mm-hmm. homer. But uh, this year they are definitely doing that. That's why they're successful. Uh, Sixty-two home runs and five steals. Uh, so the most homers in all of baseball and the least amount of steals. 
Um, so pretty good strategy for them. Uh, if they're going to hit a lot of homers, it doesn't make sense for them to try to steal a lot of bases. Yeah, they keep hanging around. I feel like every uh, every week on a preparing for the podcast, I'm expecting them to kind of regress back to 500, but they're in first in the AL East, even though the Red Sox have been killing uh, opposing pitchers. And I don't know, starting to think that maybe the Orioles are going to stick around. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing, uh, yeah, one thing I was going to note, uh, conversely speaking, you're talking about Kershaw's dominance. Um, Matt Harvey has been... Yeah, uh, pretty terrible this year. Um, Sixty-five hits and forty-eight innings pitched this year. Opponents are batting three twenty-five against him, and he uh, had an awful start on Friday. Gave up nine runs in less than three innings. Um, so he's just completely lost his confidence. And it doesn't. Yes, yeah, I don't think it's arm-related. Doesn't really seem like it's has anything to do with you know his physical. I mean, maybe maybe he's not saying something. It's bothering him, that is, but it uh, seems to be mostly mental, and the Mets need to figure that out if they're going to have any chance of, of winning the East. Yeah, his velocity is down a little bit, right? Uh, yeah, just a tad, but um, he's not complaining. I mean, he came back from Tommy John surgery, and that would kind of be the easiest conclusion that his arm just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, isn't recovering from last last season, but... But we to this point, I said that's not that's not the case. We talked about on the podcast last year that uh, he threw the most innings of anyone recovering from Tommy John surgery the year after. Uh, two two uh, bigger things that I wanted to discuss a little bit uh, before we get to our podcast. Uh, first is the rule changes. Paul, did you see? I know you were in uh, Wisconsin fishing, but did you see um, that the MLB owners approved some rule changes? Uh, I just saw a couple headlines. Is that the the strike zone? Yeah, so the strike zone. Um, they agreed to change it to the uh, to move it up from the bottom of the knee to the top of the knee, and then the second rule change is that um, to intentionally walk someone, uh, you don't have to pitch it. Uh, you just say that you want to intentionally walk somebody. So does that have to be approved by like a, another committee, or is that? Are those rules going to go into effect next year? No, yeah, the the rules committee, there's like, yeah, some sort of rules board that meets over the winter, and then um, they would approve it for next year. And then they want to get the Players uh, Association, their approval of it, but they don't have to get that. Um, they can just make the change without their approval, but I think they want the players on board. Yeah, both of those seem, I mean, you, I feel like you've been pushing for the, the low strike to get banished for a little while now. So, and yeah. then the, I don't have any issue with the intentional walk. Um, that's, that's how we always played in like slow pitch softball. Yeah. In high school, high, high school baseball too. So was it, was it that way? It was that way. Yeah. I don't remember that. I guess I don't remember actually throwing intentional, uh, walk the actual pitches. So yeah, that makes sense. Um, Second thing, I, yeah, I'm in agreement with you on both of those. They're good ideas. The change in strike zone is more to boost offense, and then the walk rule would be to uh, speed up the time of games. Uh, the, the other thing, and we, we don't have to go too deep into this, but uh, what was your take on the Blue Jays-Rangers fiasco last Sunday? It happened uh, right after we finished recording uh, last week's episode, so I uh, wanted to get your take on it uh, a week after. I mean, for a podcast, <laughs> uh, the biggest baseball thing that's happened so far this year happens like literally within an hour of us finishing. 
Um, yeah, I, I mean, uh, it's a complicated thing. I think uh, taking a step back and looking at it kind of holistically, going back to last October, essentially this all started because uh, uh, Jose Batista flipped his bat. And we've talked about this plenty of times on the podcast. I don't think either of us has a real issue with that. Obviously, mm-hmm. we've never played in the big leagues and maybe don't understand exactly how that works in the game. Um, I thought Chipper Jones came out uh, earlier this week and said it totally makes sense that the Rangers would still be upset about it. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I don't have any issue with it. I think like uh, we need more of that in baseball. Like uh, if you you're talking about the bat flip. Yeah, if you hit, hit the biggest home run in your franchise's history or maybe in the last 20 years of your franchise, then I think it's time to celebrate. Um, and so because I don't necessarily see a problem with that, I think all of this is um, incredibly unnecessary. And um, so I, I, I would side with the Blue Jays for sure. And uh, I, I thought Bautista's slide was obviously out of line, but then the, the punch was even was even more out of line. It is, it is kind of crazy how it was the last time they were going to see each other this year. Um, the two teams and uh, how it just so happened that there was a ground ball double play opportunity mm-hmm. when Matista was on first base. So like just kind of all the the factors that led up to just an explosion. But what did, mm. what did you think? I thought that both Batista and um, Odor are tools, idiots. Um, Batista, I don't have a problem with the bat flip from last year. But it seems like he's not very well liked in clubhouses. Um, there's a lot of people that came to Odor's defense, even outside of the Rangers. Um, so I think Batista is a pretty bad teammate, pretty egotistical. And then Odor, yeah, I mean, I don't condone jacking someone in the face when you're upset with them. Um, so yeah, that would be my take. But I mean, I don't, I don't think it was necessarily terrible for baseball. I mean. People talked about baseball for a couple of days after that that normally wouldn't. Probably a, a net positive for baseball. But yeah, if this became a regular thing, uh, this sort of uh, retaliating, I would have a problem with it. I wasn't all that worked up about it. Uh, John Gibbons, the Blue Jays manager, this is how his week went. On Sunday, he was ejected from the, the brawl because he, he had already been ejected during the game and then came out... Uh, during the whole scrum. So, of course, he was suspended for coming back out. You can't do that. That's what Bryce Harper got suspended for. So he was suspended uh, Tuesday through Thursday, but he managed one game before that on Monday, which he was also ejected from for arguing with the umpires. And then on Sunday, today, when we're recording this, he was also ejected uh, wow. after his suspension. So uh, not uh, not a great week, maybe something... I know the Blue Jays aren't playing well, but someone should check on Gibbons, uh, his like personal life to see if anything's awry, because that is a that's a rough week. There's nothing in uh, Major League Baseball like the NBA where if you get so many ejections, then you're like suspended automatically. Is there? I don't think so. All right, well that does it for our look around baseball. Uh, this is a very exciting podcast. Got a lot of good stuff in store. Uh, first, Paul has TWTW. Uh, then we'll do Sounds of the Game. 1992 NLCS uh, was uh, a lot of fun for me to put this one together. Uh, after that, we'll do Out of the Box. A bit out of order this week because we're going to not discuss articles 
discuss a book, The Only Rules It Has to Work, that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. And we'll discuss that for about 10 minutes. And then uh, the interview this week uh, kind of comes out of that. So we interview the uh, broadcaster for the Sonoma Stoppers, who is the kind of the main team in the, in the book. Uh, Tim Livingston joins us, and uh, it was a really good interview. And then we'll finish with our normal bottom of the ninth segments. Uh, so first up, we have TWTW. When you can put some of those categories, you know, you got your OBPS and all that and the VORPs. When they put in TWTW and then interface those numbers with TWTW under that category, then you might have something cooking. What, what, what TW is? Yeah, what is that? That's the will to win. All right, so for my TW, TW segment this week, uh, I'm going to look at uh, pitcher efficiency. Well, b- uh, before you get into that, I wanted to give a special shout-out. Uh, so I was back home for a cousin's high school graduation, and uh, her older brother, Joey, uh, from Geneseo, Illinois, wanted to give him a shout-out. He's a huge fan of the podcast, and uh, he uh, showed me a very hilarious Hawk Harrelson video at the graduation party. And uh, so I know he's going to listen to this. So, uh, Joey, thanks for listening. Uh, yes. Uh, yes, thanks for listening, Drew. Um, so uh, looking at pitcher efficiency, and I was um, uh, inspired to look into this after reading uh, an article in Sports Illustrated this past week by Ben Reeder. And he wrote about Chris Sale and kind of the changes that he's made going into this year. Um, just a lot of you know, Sale broke a record last year for having tied a record, Pedro Martinez's record for striking out 10 or more batters in um, eight consecutive games last year. And so he had a phenomenal year last year, but um, he, over the offseason, decided, you know, is is that the the best way for for him to um, pitch? You know, just kind of going all out and uh, looking to strike guys out consistently. And he determined that um, he could have the most impact for the White Sox um, by staying in the game longer. Obviously, when you're striking guys out, you're not inducing contact, so a lot of times at bats are going to be five, six, seven pitches deep. And so he's going to come out of the game in the sixth or seventh inning versus you know maybe the eighth or the ninth. Um, so I thought that was interesting that he's made that considered approach this year, that change. And so I wanted to determine in the top 20 ERA leaders, which is kind of the typical stat we look at, to determine who's the best pitcher in baseball, who uh, is the most efficient, and who stays in the game the longest. So I looked at the top 30 starters in Major League Baseball to start this year, Kershaw, and right? looked at and looked at pitches per inning pitched. And I was going to have you guess, but yes, you are correct. Clayton Kershaw is uh, is the most efficient. Uh, that's why. That's why he won my uh, NL Cy Young vote last year. Nice, nice. One step ahead of me. Any idea how many uh, pitches per inning pitch Clayton Kershaw has averaged so far this year? Uh, I'll say 16. Uh, he's at 13.47. Wow. So very, very efficient. And Chris Sale is second for that approach um, that Ben Reader talked about in his article in Sports Illustrated is paying off. He is at 14.1 uh, pitches per inning pitch. And then rounding out the top five, Aaron Nola, pitcher for the Phillies. He's very Nick good. Arietta. I feel like he's, yeah, un- very, very he's pretty underrated, Nola. Yes, and the Phillies in general are a little underrated. Uh, then Jake Arietta is fourth, and Johnny Cueto is fifth. Um, 
Yeah, and I think even though, you know, so Kershaw's at a 13, Sales at 14, I think uh, the the most uh, pitches per inning pinched that I saw amongst the top 30 was like 18. So even though that doesn't seem like a lot, if you factor that out over the course of a game, you know, that's a difference of four innings, four pitches per inning. Uh, you know, by the time you've pitched six innings, that's over over 20 pitches, and that means that you're definitely going to finish uh, an inning or two shorter than Kershaw or Sale. So interesting stuff, and I think Sale is is uh, definitely has the right approach. That the longer he can go in games, it's uh, kind of the best possible situation for the White Sox. Yep. Yeah, for the White Sox to be good or make the playoffs this year, Sale will have to. Uh be uh, consistently amazing. Uh, I asked uh, brother Kevin this yesterday when I saw him at the uh, aforementioned uh, graduation party. How many wins do you think Chris Hale will win this year? Yeah, he's already 9-0. and um, I think, I mean, we have to say 36-0, and right? <laughs> That's what he's on so, pace for. Uh, I will go, I, I, I say he'll go, oof. 20, 23 and six. Hmm. Kevin, uh, Kevin said he thought he'd win fourteen games. Wow. Yeah, I'll have to ask him about that tonight. Yeah. What do you What do you think? Oh, I think he'll win twenty for sure. I'll say. Yeah, I'll say twenty four. Just because it's higher than what you said. Yeah. Yeah. Fourteen seems pretty low. All right, that does it for TWTW. If you want to read the article Paul mentioned, you can check out our uh, podcast episode page at afootinthebox.com. Next up, we have Sounds of the Game. All right, this is Peter with Sounds of the Game, uh, the, the moment we will be looking at and listening to on this week's podcast is the 1992 NLCS. Paul, do you know who played in the uh, 1992 NLCS? Uh, I mean, a safe guess would probably be the Braves because they made it to about every championship series in the 90s. That's one of the teams. Who's the other team? Uh, uh, 92, I'll say the Padres. It's the Pirates. Pirates. Yep. Uh, So... This was a rematch of the 1991 NLCS, which also went to seven games. And uh, in the 92 NLCS, the Braves are up three games to one. Then the Pirates won a couple games uh, to force a game seven. Uh, This matchup was John Smoltz against Doug Drabeck. Uh, Very good pitching matchup at the time. The third time they had matched up in the uh, seven-game series with Smoltz winning the first uh, two matchups. So this is Game 7 in Atlanta at uh, the Braves' old stadium. I guess old, old stadium now with the new one, uh, uh, Fulton County Stadium. And um, the Pirates took a 2 nothing lead into the ninth inning. And then there's a lot of stuff that happened uh, that, that I'm going to talk about that sets up our clip this week. Uh, so it's 2 nothing. Pirates headed to the bottom of the ninth. Of course, the winner of this game goes on to play the Blue Jays in the World Series. Uh, so Doug Drabeck, who's been pitching great, zero runs through eight innings, comes out again for the ninth uh, to face the middle of the, middle of the 
Braves lineup. Terry Pendleton leads off the inning with a double. And then David Justice reaches on an air. So it's first and third with no outs. Again, the Pirates are up two to nothing. Uh, so Justice on first would be the tying run. And the hitter would be the, the go-ahead winning run. Uh, Sid Bream uh, comes up to bat, first baseman for the Braves. He walks on four pitches. Again, Drayback is still in the game. Leland finally pulls Drayback after this, uh, who has thrown more than 120 pitches now. Uh, so he possibly should have been pulled sooner. Uh, he brings in his closer, Stan Belinda. Uh, so it's bases loaded, nobody out. Uh, the Pirates are up 2 to nothing. Uh, the next batter, Ron Gant, against Belinda, flies out to Bonds. Barry Bonds, who's playing left field for the Pirates. Uh, Bonds catches it against the wall. Uh, so one run scores, making it 2-1, to one, but the runners on first and second have to hold because it was hit to left field. So first and second, one out. Belinda then walks another batter, which loads the bases. Uh, so again, bases loaded, one out. Um, Pirates up 2-1. to one. Brian Hunter is the next batter. He pops up to second base for the second out of the inning. So two outs, bases loaded, Pirates up 2-1. to one. In steps, pinch hitter Francisco Cabrera. And uh, that is where our uh, Sounds of the Game segment picks up this week. Tim McCarver and Sean McDonough are on the call. Sean McDonough uh, was recently uh, promoted to be the voice of Monday Night Football. Uh, so enjoy his uh, his baseball calls as a foretaste of uh, Monday Night Football this fall. Uh, so here is that at bat between Stan Belinda and Francisco Cabrera. And now the Braves' season hangs in the balance as Francisco Cabrera comes to the plate to bat for the pitcher. He appeared in only 12 games this year for the Braves and batted only 10 times with three hits. He's 0 for 1 in this series. Belinda's first pitch, a breaking ball outside. Now, if Belinda goes 2-0 to Cabrera, I'd have him take. He has not been up that much, and I think the chances then are better with a walk than a hit when you have to come off the bench and face a guy like Melinda. The most unlikely man in the spotlight for Atlanta. 25-year-old Francisco Cabrera who takes ball two, two and all. Pittsburgh two, Atlanta one, with two outs in the bottom of the ninth inning in Game 7 of the National League Championship Series. The 2-0 pitch. Well hit, but hooking fouled and left. He had the green light on 2-0 and hammered it, but well fouled over the Pirate bullpen. And hit it very, very hard. Right in his wheelhouse, and it hooks foul. doesn't walk much. He walked only 17 times and 300 at-bats in AAA this year. 
He hacked at the 2-0, now the 2-1. Line drive and a base hit! Just as the score of the tying run, Green to the plate, and he is safe! Safe at the plate! The Braves go to the World Series! The unlikeliest of heroes wins the National League Championship Series for the Atlanta Braves. Francisco Cabrera, who had only 10 at-bats in the major leagues during the regular season, singled through the left side, scoring Sid Bream from second base with the winning run. Bream, who's had five knee operations in his lifetime, just beat the tag of his ex-mate Mike Lavalier. And Atlanta pulls out game seven with three runs in the bottom of the ninth inning. Yes, so Francisco Cabrera, the hero. Uh, Ten plate appearances all season. I looked at his career stats, uh, 89 career major league hits, 62 RBIs in six seasons. And uh, probably the most clutch uh, postseason hit of all time. Uh, according to Wikipedia, to date, Francisco Cabrera is the only player in MLB history to, to win a postseason series with a hit during an at-bat in which he could have lost the series with an out. So there's been a wow. lot of uh, postseason series uh, clinched with a walk-off, but uh, none where the team is trailing, if that makes sense. So the, the Braves are down by one run. All the other ones have been tied when the walk-off happens to uh, close out a, a postseason series. Yeah, I, uh, I, I was very um, – I actually watched the video, and I was very unimpressed with the Pirates' uh, closer. He, um, he had, like, nothing on his fastball. It's amazing how far, like – Not a uh, fan of Stan Belinda? No, he's kind of like a sidearm or three-quarters, but it just seemed like uh, he was throwing batting practice. Mm-hmm. This game, uh, one of the best games in, in uh, baseball history, according to many people, uh, had a lot of ramifications going forward. Uh, Barry Bonds was the left fielder for the Pirates. He won the MVP uh, in the National League in 1992. It was the second in three years uh, with the Pirates. He decides to sign with the Giants uh, that offseason. Uh, he goes on to do you know, incredible things with them. And then the Pirates uh, don't have a winning season until 2013, just a couple years ago, um, 20 years of, of losing seasons for the Pirates. Um, so just huge ramifications. The uh, story that is told, um, the Bond story in that game is pretty funny. Uh, I believe Game of Shadows is where I heard it first, but it's also on the Wikipedia uh, page. Bond is playing left field. The ball is hit to left field. And the pitch before that, uh, the the batter, Cabrera, uh, just tortures a ball down the left field line. And according to the story, Andy Van Slyke, the Pirates uh, center fielder, yells to Bonds to move over a few feet um, because of the uh, what Cabrera had just done. And uh, according to the story, uh, which Van Slyke has confirmed is true, Bonds uh, flipped him off 
and and refuse <laughs> refuse to move in left field. The ball is hit to Bonds, uh, who, if he was playing where Vince like wanted him to, would have gotten to the ball faster. Uh, Bonds makes a great throw to home. Uh, the uh, the the guy that scored uh, the crappy first baseman. Said Green. Yeah, he uh, he just slides in, which. I don't know with review. I think it might have been overturned because his his front foot really popped up off the plate. Uh, but he slides in just before the tag. So if Bonds was uh, a couple feet in, he would have uh, he would have thrown him out. Um, so that just kind of encapsulates Bonds, I think, in a nutshell. Horrible teammate, uh, pretty awful dude, but an amazing athlete, and uh, just made a perfect throw home. Uh, but the the throw was just late. I was just talking with uh, Kevin. Here and I can't imagine uh, being a Pirates fan after that game. Mm-hmm. Um, that, like the highest leverage moment in in the history of baseball, and just uh, to go from a possible World Series to losing your best uh, best player, maybe in franchise history. Mm-hmm. I guess Honus Wagner was pretty good too, but just an incredibly uh, big turn of events for Pirates fans. Yep, and we'll link to the video in our podcast episode page. We'd encourage uh, people to uh, to watch that. Um, all right, next up out of the box, we are discussing Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller's newest book. Yes, as Peter mentioned, for out of the box this week, we are discussing The Only Rule is It Has to Work by Ben Lindbergh of 538 and Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. And uh, I guess to get us started, Pete, um, what did uh, what were kind of your general thoughts uh, about the book? Uh, well, first, uh, for people that haven't read it, you want to just give a brief synopsis of the, of uh, what happened? Sure. So Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller, two baseball writers and two, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, kind of stat heads or baseball nerds um, on the uh, sabermetric side of things, uh, take over a independent league team. So think like the step below minor league baseball, take over an independent league team in Sonoma, California, the Sonoma Snappers. And uh, uh, the book just chronicles kind of the, the whole season from spring training in uh, in April till the end of the season. It, it is only a three-month season in independent league ball. And the, the whole premise behind the book is that uh, these two sabermetricians uh, were going to do um, – Kind of uh, everything they had dreamed about doing uh, for like the last ten or fifteen years, they've been writing about baseball. So everything like shifts and roster construction and using your closing pitcher earlier in the game and just kind of all of the um, dreams they had. Um, and both just chronicles kind of how all that went and uh, just kind of the day in the life of them as they they went through the season as um, not necessarily GM but making a lot of GM type decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a very good synopsis. Thoughts on the book? I thought it was tremendous. Uh, I don't think it's as good as Moneyball in terms of like quality of book, but I enjoyed it more, if that makes sense. Um, and I really liked Moneyball. Uh, but it's my favorite baseball book that I've read. Um, I've read about five wow. baseball books, wow. but yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And I listen, uh, They these guys have a, a daily podcast called effectively wild and i listen to that uh not every day but a few times a week and so i got to know 
Ben and Sam a lot through that podcast because it's a daily thing. And so it's kind of like you're talking to a friend every day uh, or hearing them talk to you. Uh, so I have really become a, a fan of both of theirs. And so the book, uh, my enjoyment of the book was definitely influenced by that. But Paul, I'm interested. You don't know them as well. You might have listened to a couple episodes of the podcast, but not knowing them, um, what was your enjoyment level of the book? Yeah, I mean, enjoyment level was high. I really, I thought the book was entertaining. They're both professional writers, and so the actual writing of the book uh, was very good. And, and for people that haven't read it, they there's two authors, but they rotate chapters. So, like one chapter one is Ben, two is Sam, and then they do that throughout the book. So it's a I hadn't read a book that di- kind of did that style before. Yeah, and I uh, I appreciated their the way they wrote. Um, they were very transparent. You know, even when they uh, disagreed about things or were having conflict between the two of them, they were they were honest about it. Even sometimes, like documented a text or email conversations they would have back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I thought the the way it was written was very good, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I will say, I think it it probably won't be like a bestseller solely because well, it was uh, it was a New York it, New York Times bestseller. Well, to be wrong on this. It won't be like a classic baseball book, I guess, because uh, the things they implemented weren't all that successful. Um, in that, if they hadn't showed up, the the team they took over, you know, wouldn't have been drastically worse than um, than what they were. You know, like the some of the stuff they tried uh, in one season, in one three month season, is such such a small sample size that. Uh, uh, yeah, it's just it's difficult to drastically improve a team. But I think, I, I think what you have to do is separate their success as management from the book itself. So the the yeah, book yeah. the book I mean, it, yeah, the book the itself book. is a is a work of art. Like it's a thing to stand alone. And I think the book will be one of the best uh, baseball books. It'll go on that list of, of baseball books you have to read. Um, whereas separating that from, all right, what did they do to change baseball? They kind of had aspirations to do some things that would impact the game. Uh, you know, you would look back on that season and say, oh, they, they changed baseball. There's a five man infield now because of what they did or closers are used differently because of what uh, Ben and Sam did this season. Uh, so that was unsuccessful, but I feel like the book, um, is different than what they did as, as management. Yeah, and like I mean, who knows how much um, how much say they have in like the, the title and like the subtitle? But the, the subtitle of the book it's on the cover is "Our Wild Experiment Building a New Kind of Baseball Team." And so I guess with that as sort of the uh, the general thesis or idea behind the book, I, I felt like they came up quite a bit short in, in building a new kind of baseball team. But I, I mean, I totally agree with you that. The book in and of itself is less about uh, how the team finished and more about their experience of implementing all these new strategies and tactics. And I, the biggest mistake they made, obviously, and they would say this, is the manager they hired for the first uh, third of the season. Um, they essentially hired a Hawk Harrelson type to manage their team when uh, they themselves were on like a totally different wavelength. 
Yeah, and I, I thought one of the big takeaways for me was they talked about kind of reflecting back on the year, like how much time is involved in doing what they wanted to do and like how little bandwidth they had to to actually like make those changes. So as I described it, it's like baseball season is such a grind. Even the three-month season, like there's constantly games being played and scouting reports to be done that, that kind of the big picture stuff gets put on the back burner. Mm-hmm. Um, which I totally uh, can see and probably not something you realize as a bystander. And, I mean, it's different for major league teams, right, because the general manager has a staff of probably, what, like 20, 25 people mm-hmm. that can do some of those smaller things. But when you're running an independent league team, they were having to, like, set up the pitch FX equipment and, um, you know, just figure out smaller stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, on opening day, they, they helped hang, hang the banner for the, the season and like the ribbon behind home plate. So they were having to do all that stuff while also trying to collect data and, you know, make decisions about the roster. So mm-hmm. I thought that was an interesting takeaway. Two, uh, two final questions. Uh, one. So Ben and Sam alternate chapters. Like I said, uh, do you have a favorite between those two? And then the second one, do you have any takeaways from the book on, uh, baseball or life in general? Good questions. Uh, Sam was my favorite, Sam Miller, who, you know, we've talked and he's also your favorite, I know. Um, just a really good writer, very funny, and uh, tend to um, see the world, I guess, in similar ways as, as him. And uh, I guess I'm, I'm fairly used to him, too, from writing for baseball perspectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of takeaways, big takeaways about baseball or life, um, I really appreciate the way that through the book you're able to um, understand kind of complex baseball statistics or ideas in a way that like makes sense. So, and then, and then writing about having to describe like a stat like fit fielding independent pitching to their manager or to players, you know, kind of dumbing down that I gained like a, a new appreciation and like a desire myself to be able to describe those things in similar ways. Hmm. Um, I feel like a lot of times I get excited about, favorite metrics or stats and I'm not always the best I guess it's kind of the idea behind our stat segment our TWTW but I kind of want to get better at being able to, to do that and um, I thought they they do an excellent job of that mm-hmm. no no life, have, uh, no life lessons uh, I mean I love baseball I think baseball has become my favorite sport so nice um, now that's a couple weeks ago you said basketball is your favorite sport did I say like overall my basketball is my favorite sport I think so yeah, I mean, basketball is my, still my favorite sport to play, but in terms of, like, watching, I think baseball's number one. What is it about these books or the sport that just you, like, lose yourself in it? So, like, Moneyball or this book, what is it about, like, movies or books about baseball that... Because, like, if you, if you were to watch a White Sox game, you wouldn't get, like, lost in it, and you wouldn't think all these warm and fuzzy things about it. But, like, Moneyball captured something that even, like, non-baseball mm-hmm. fans... Uh, like so, what is it about the sport or these movies or books that like are so? I don't know. Romantic, I guess, is the best word. Yeah, uh, I don't know if this is romantic, but I think with Moneyball and the only rule it has to work is that it's neat to see uh, people spend the same amount of like time and energy, or even the same amount more time and energy thinking through things that I like love and care about. 
And with baseball, there's just on like in that bat by a bat basis, there's just so much going on kind of behind the scenes and like and people really breaking down the sport. Like it's just neat to get like a kind of a window into how they're thinking about those at bats or players or like in a given game there's so many different storylines going on and I think that's different. At least from my perspective, different than like a fast paced sport like basketball where you're you're not you don't have time to think possession by possession mm-hmm. um about the game. And so I, I kinda like the strategy. So I guess with Moneyball and the stuff we just read that that would be my my thing. I don't know, have you thought about it? Uh no. Yeah, I just thought of that question like there's something that Moneyball like tapped into about baseball. That's really interesting to me. Um, and I, yeah, I guess it's just the pace of the game and I think it's very nostalgic for a lot of people. And I think there's different reasons why people uh, are drawn to things like Moneyball uh, because there's for baseball fans, it's much different than non-baseball fans, but most people that watch that movie loved it. Mm-hmm. I would definitely recommend if you're listening to this that you go buy the book. Uh, very, um, yeah, just recommend it uh, to anyone that's interested in, in baseball. So uh, on the front of the book, Nate Silver, I think I have the book here. Nate Silver says it's brutally honest, blissfully funny. If you had to describe the book in four words and your four words were on the cover of the book, what would you say, Paul? Uh, well, Difficult question. Um, While you think about it, I'm going to preview our next segment. Uh, so we interviewed one of the characters from the book, pretty big uh, podcast get here. Tim Livingston is the broadcaster for the Sonoma Snoppers. Yeah, does a great job broadcasting for the team. And Ben and Sam uh, mentioned him throughout the, the book, and so we were excited to interview him because there's no person that would have a better uh, front row seat to all of this uh, happened then Tim the broadcaster and so uh, our interview with him will be next uh, Paul do you have four words for us how about delightful read terrific writing <laughs> well done all right here is the Sonoma Stompers uh, play-by-play and color announcer Tim Livingston I am joined on the podcast this week by the Director of Media Relations and Broadcasting for the Sonoma Stoppers, Tim Livingston. Tim, welcome to the A Foot in the Box podcast. Thank you for having me, Peter. I appreciate it. Uh, listeners, you can follow Tim on Twitter, at Mr. Tim Livingston. Well, Tim, uh, Paul and I have been reading and very much enjoying uh, Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller's new book, The Only Rule is It Has to Work. And we wanted to talk with someone that was around the team last year when uh, Ben and Sam took over. Uh, but we, before we discuss the book or the 2015 uh, Stomper season, I wanted to get to know the city of Sonoma a little bit better. So you were born and raised there. Uh, describe to our listeners who most likely have never been to Sonoma what uh, what Sonoma, California is all about. Yeah, I mean, it's quaint. It's about 20,000 people in the general area. And it's actually it's a lot bigger than you might think for a town of, of that many because the fact that we're in the middle of a valley and the valley itself is, is, is pretty large. So 
you know, the, the city itself is only about 10,000 people, but then, you know, around it, there's, there's a lot more people kind of in the outlying areas. And, you know, it is, it's a, it's a very historic town. It was at, for a couple of days, the capital of California back hmm. at the, uh, the bear flag revolt back in the you know, mid 1800s before California became a state. And, um, it's a very, it has a very historic and really nice, um, town square downtown, which is one of the only open bottle carry places in the state of California. Hmm. And so that can lead to some things, but from a, from, from a, from a general perspective, a lot of historic buildings, some very good restaurants, obviously the wine, which is, which is kind of self-explanatory when, when you talk about Sonoma. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, as far as sports go, uh, you know, we're, we're about an hour away from San Francisco, an hour away from Oakland, two hours away from San Jose. So, you know, the mig, may, you know, the major markets around here, from a sports perspective, the, the closest thing Sonoma had to a baseball team in the past were the Sonoma County Crushers, which were an independent league in the old uh, Pacific League that uh, was around back in the late 90s and early 2000s, was a great draw, like really one of the most popular things that had come to Sonoma County in a really long time. Hmm. But the rest of the league, and this is independent baseball, the rest of the league couldn't catch up. And there were two teams that were that were good, two teams that are always competing for championships, and then the Crushers kind of fell away. And so the Stompers came along like the the Crushers, like as a way to give in entertainment to this small city of ten thousand, twenty thousand people. Mm-hmm. And uh, they played Arnold Field, which is named after an old uh, Air Force and, and Army general, Hap Arnold, Arnold Field. And it's it's just there's a lot of history in Sonoma. And so when you think about Sonoma, it's about the wine and it's about, you know, 150 plus years of of being one of the more famous small towns uh, in the state of California. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's you kind of mentioned this, but what's the baseball vibe out there? Are there a lot of uh, baseball fans? Are they mostly uh, A's fans, Giants fans or Dodgers? Where's that kind of fall? It's mostly Giants fans, uh, from what I, I've seen, but it is a baseball town. Like, if you think about, like, high school sports, for the longest time, baseball has been, well, along with football, perhaps the, the most popular sports, although football's been kind of waning because of the fact that, uh, the, 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 the younger population isn't as big as it was, uh, back in my days. Okay. But baseball's always been a big deal in Sonoma. And so, yeah, it's mostly Giants and A's fans. Uh, I would say mostly Giants fans, but, uh, yeah, it's 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 definitely a baseball city, and that's another alert to it. Was we had this great field in Arnold Field, the high school's popular. Like when they played on Friday night uh, last week, their final league game before the playoffs started this week, they had a full house on senior night. So, nice. you know, I mean, it, it is. It's a very much a baseball town, and it's it's really cool to 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 have that feeling kind of just built into this city because. Uh, you know, just the way that the Giants have been playing the last few years, there's a lot of excitement there. And of course, the A's before the Giants got going were such a big deal that it kind of got everybody together too. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's been a long time where people have had something to root for when it's come to baseball and, uh, and locally too, it's, it's been, uh, good at the high school level. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, what's, uh, what's your history with baseball? How did you, um, get involved with the Stompers? Were you a baseball fan growing up or just wanted to get into broadcasting? What's your experience with the game? Yeah, I mean, I played, you know, up until about 16 or 17. I tried out for my varsity team, didn't make it. There was a bunch of first basemen that tried out, and one of them was a team captain. And uh, even though I worked really hard to, to get there, I just I didn't have it. So uh, I 
then turned to broadcasting. And if it wasn't for baseball perspectives, I'd never be in working in the game of baseball. Hmm. I actually found out about the uh, winner, uh, the, the winner meetings job fair uh, through an article on baseball perspectives back in 2008 that got me a job um, that got me to the job fair. And then I ran into a friend of mine who I didn't know worked with the blue Jays and he got me an interview uh, and for their minor league team, the Dunedin blue Jays. And so I got to work there in Florida for two years. That's also their spring training home. So I got to work with the major league team too, for a couple of months. And I, you know, met Alex Anthopoulos and JP hmm. Ricciardi and, uh, and all these other guys that worked in the front office there and really got to know them. Um, and it was it was a really fun time for me there. And then when I came back, I was looking for jobs out on the West Coast after my two years in Florida. I uh, didn't really find anything that uh, that uh, popped up. Broadcasting jobs, as some people might know, are really hard to break into because nobody wants to give them up. Um, and the Stompers just kind of fell into my lap in some ways. Like I was. Uh, just starting to go back to school because uh, I was looking to, to do something with uh, analytics and mm -hmm. I had a couple of years worth of classes to start. And so I was going back to school. I had my summers available um, because of my high school broadcasting, which I had done for years just here at a local radio station. Uh, one of the guys who knew me talked to Theo Fightmaster, the general manager, it recommended him to me. Uh, recommended me to him, I should say. Mm -hmm. And then I interviewed with him. I became the broadcaster. I was then added on as media relations, and I've been there ever since. So this will be my third year with them. Yeah. And you have a really interesting um, lens to view this whole book from because you were involved with the Stompers uh, like the season before Ben and Sam came mm -hmm. in, and then you're also involved, um, you know, when they were involved in 2015, and now you're still there. So what – I guess starting at the beginning, when you first heard about the idea, these, you know, these two analytical guys coming in to um, kind of revamp the whole thing, the whole team, what, what was your first thought? Sounds like you kind of had a sabermetric uh, mindset beforehand, but were you excited uh, when you heard about it? Yeah, in fact, I didn't really know it was going on behind closed doors because I was in class while this was all going on, and um, you know, I had reached out to Sam. He came out, wrote that great article on the Stompers uh, back on Labor Day of 2014. Mm -hmm. um, it really kind of opened people's eyes to what the Stompers and independent baseball was like. And then I was talking with Theo a few months later and just saying, you know, uh, you know, season's about to start up. What, what do you want me to focus on? And he's like, uh, just be prepared the next few days. There's something big that um, that's going to be announced. And you kind of have a hand in it. I was like, well, I, and I didn't know what he's talking about. And then I heard on the Baltimore Orioles preview about uh, the the book, and so I, I was just beyond thrilled. I was so excited, and uh, I, it was kind of like it was almost a dream for me because I, I've always kind of wanted to see what sabermetrics would do at a level like independent baseball. What could be done. And, and kind of, you know, reading Ben and Sam's work for so many years, it's kind of like, oh, I get to actually see them do this in <laughs> front of me. And it was it was a great thrill for me. And I was so happy to see that that uh, they were they were given almost a clean, you know, a clean slate. They're like, this is yours. Do what you feel like you need to do. And uh, once I got to see what they planned on on doing and, and got to be, uh, you know, firsthand right there with with all the all the the great things they wanted to do um it really made it the best baseball experience i've ever had mm -hmm. yeah even 
as you talk about it, I'm kind of jealous of that uh, <laughs> that experience. There's probably a ton of differences in terms of the the on the field product from 2014 to 2015. But what are a couple main differences that you saw with how the team played uh, between those two years? Well. I- I mean, one of the things that we really did have from 2014 to 2015 was a lot of the talent that was good in our league the year before came back and was on our team. Um, one thing that did stand out right away was that a couple of the guys that, that the Ben and Sam picked out, um, either through the hilarious story of Daniel Baptista, which uh, if you guys don't know what I'm talking about, you haven't read the book yet, <laughs> I will not spoil it for you, but it was my probably my favorite thing that's ever happened to me in regards to baseball. Um, but I mean, the pitching Sean Conroy was doing great at the start and, and did great the rest of the year, but it really was kind of a combination of both the guys that, that uh, man, our player manager at the time, Phelan Lentini brought along, Sergio Miranda did well, you know, Jared Mojizuku is doing well. Um, but you know, it was also our returners who Carranza after a slow start really started hitting like the guy we thought he was going to be and even had a refined approach at the plate. I just, I just think that it was a year more for some of these guys who were really good and who probably shouldn't have been playing at that level to begin the year. Like Isaac Wendrick probably shouldn't have been here, but he was here anyway. Joel Carranza shouldn't have been here, but he was here anyway. Matt Hibbert, who was a great outfielder and leadoff man, he probably shouldn't have been here anyway. And they'd all paid off because now all those guys, you know, they're in 2016, they're playing at the higher level and they stayed with those teams that they went to, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think the big difference was that there was kind of a more focused attempt to um, to to really bring together a better a better talent base to choose from. Mm-hmm. And, and while it wasn't really on the offensive side for what Sam and Ben were trying to do, they really did help on the pitching side in a lot of ways. And it kind of starts and ends with Sean Conroy, who had a great year for us and was such a great fungible piece of our pitching uh, a ro- you know rotation mm-hmm. and also in the bullpen and it, it really kind of added a lot to the team to have a guy like that who was so flexible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I assume you've read the book. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So that book, if if you, you know, I'm sure everybody's seen the picture of me holding the book on the uh, effectively wild that that picture that was taken. Literally two hours after that, that picture was taken, I went home, read the book. And I was done six hours later. Like I, I mm-hmm. sped through that thing. So <laughs> well, I, I couldn't put it down. Well, I was curious. Well, uh, do you have like a favorite uh, chapter or section from the book? Oh, without a doubt, it's evidences. That's chapter twelve. I mean, it's it's the like so there are two chapters, and that's a Sam Miller chapter, and then the chapter fourteen, which is the the final game. That's a Ben Lindbergh chapter, and both of those just fill my heart with joy, and for many many different reasons. Um, you kind of get in Sam's perspective how it, it all came together for him, you know, as the season was winding down. And then Ben, you know, coming to, to, to grips with what this, you know, final game would mean and him doing a great account of it and, and, and everything that led up to it and kind of the aftermath of it too. But, uh, you know, those two chapters, if I wanted to pick one for each author really stood out, but mm-hmm. evidence is, is my favorite in the book. Like, as soon as I got to that chapter, there were so many things that Sam wrote in that that just resonated with me and had me kind of like just yelling out loud how much <laughs> I liked them. And um, you know, I, I, I couldn't I, I couldn't really uh, really kind of put into words a lot of the things that I felt about last season because I mean that's their job they're writing the book. Yeah. <laughs> 
But man, I mean, those two chapters, like it's it's great payoff too, because you get to those chapters, you get to see what those guys write near the end of the book, and it's it's just it just kind of blows your mind. Like it's it's really incredible what they were able to put together, and uh, and what they learned throughout the process, and how it turned into something that um to to, to them was was such a worthwhile endeavor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so final question. Uh, what will you take away from the 2015 Sonoma Stoppers? Any uh, any big life lessons or things that will resonate uh, going forward? Yeah, I mean, on the micro level, I feel that, you know, and I've been talking with Theo about this, is that I, I think there's definitely a, a place for advanced, you know, an, analytical ideas at the independent league level. But I think what it does is it, it's a little bit more difficult to quantify that than it is at, say, the major league level when you have the 162 games and you have so many years of data that you can really dig, you know, dig into. Independent, independent league ball is so scattershot mm-hmm. that it kind of becomes a, it kind of becomes a, a race to, um, a kind of a race to confirm your biases in some ways or to try and do things that don't have confirmation bias behind it. So there's a lot of things that kind of uh, can, can come up that are unexpected if you're used to working in a bigger setting or, or working with data from a bigger setting. And that is something that I kind of realized with that. And I, and I think Ben and Sam talk about that too, is that they, they kind of realize just what would work and what wouldn't work. And they incorporated that a little bit more once the end of the season came in. Um, big picture, I, I, you know, and, and, and this is kind of, I, I'm, I'm with Sam, on this and, and, and Ben, you know, to, to an extent too, as far as like, I just realized how lucky I was in the sense that, you know, we get calls still every day about players wanting to play for us or, or, you know, we've, we've reached out to people who've wanted to work for us in, mm-hmm. in some capacity or another. And we realize now, and I realize this considering I'm going into grad school in a couple of months, and this might be my last season um, doing a baseball job like this, is just how lucky I am to be working for a baseball team. And the camaraderie you get with people, me and Theo have become so close, you know, meeting Ben and Sam through this and, and thinking I had two years in pro baseball. I met a lot of good people. But like Ben and Sam, I have a they wrote a book about one of my experiences, mm-hmm. and like that's going to resonate with me even more than some of the stuff I did with the Blue Jays, if not way more than that. And so I, I just I just consider myself lucky to be you know born here, to have a baseball team start here, to have an email sent out that somehow through events you know above my head with him and Theo or Sam and Theo and 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 the ownership like that happening I, I just i can't get over how lucky i am and how lucky i'm i'm so happy that all you guys get to see that like this book is is incredible and it's a bestseller and it's continuing to get more popular as the weeks go on mm-hmm. and i hope it does i hope it sells a million copies because it's a great story those guys deserve all the accolades in the world and i'm really happy that people get to to read this story about a really incredible moment in, in all our lives uh you know these few months this summer that that turned out to be so great and 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 really turned out to be a story that even if you planned out what you hope this story would be it became way more than that mm-hmm. yeah it's a really cool book i would encourage everyone to buy it and read it it's it's just uh, an amazing story uh mm-hmm. so moneyball was made into a movie if this book is made into a movie <laughs> Who plays Tim Livingston in the, in that movie? 
Theo and I were talking about this yesterday. Um, <laughs> he personally, and I'm saying this for Theo just in case, uh, he hopes he's played by Jason Siegel, which I think <laughs> would be a great casting. Yep. Um, I hope that I can pull a Bob Uecker and play myself because I know <laughs> my, my lines would be small enough that it just, you know, spout them in there. Um, I don't know, though. I, I would love it, and it sucks he's not around, but John Candy would have been great. Yeah. I, I mean, I thought that his I mean, rookie of the year, he was so great as a broadcaster in that, even mm-hmm. though he was kind of just a comedian playing a broadcaster. Like, if he was still around, I'd let him to play. Uh, but if I were to pick someone now, I would, you know, I would probably pick someone like, uh, oh, Jesus. I'm on the spot here. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I think I would pick Vince Scully. Yeah, Vince Scully would be terrific. Vince would like to come out of come out of retirement. If they wanted to up, if they wanted to upshoot and put John Miller in my role, I would love that. Nice. That would be I mean, that would be great. Uh, so I'm I'm gonna go with John Miller just because uh, you know I pattern myself after him as much as I can, and um, I would figure it's like you know, although I'd be able to do it cheaper than him if they wanted to put some prestige behind the movie, which I hope they would want to do. You know, getting John, who's a local guy, and yeah, like, yeah, you heard about this? And it's like, I think he'd be, I think he'd do just fine. Uh, so yeah, I'll go with John Miller. How about that? That's a good one. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Tim, and uh, wish you nothing but the best in future endeavors in the 2016 uh, Sniper season. Hope it's a successful one. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. And yeah, go read the book. It's phenomenal. And uh, I, I hope everybody enjoys it. And if you are coming out to Sonoma or have a, a big summer trip planned and you're coming to Northern California, please come by. Uh, we'll be more than willing to have you at a game and, uh, and, and talk about the book and whatever else that comes to mind. So I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Tim. No problem. Thank you, Peter. Thanks so much to Tim for sitting down. Uh, or standing up. I don't know what his pasture was when uh, talking with us, but thanks uh, to him for devoting some time, uh, especially as the the Stomper season is getting underway here. And one thing we didn't mention, Paul, the Stompers uh, had one of their players get picked up by a major league team this past Mm -hmm. week. Uh, So that was pretty cool. Yes, yeah, it kind of shows how big of a deal the book was, or I guess that they were onto something. Uh, Paul, before we get to our segments, uh, your wife just texted me. Oh, boy. She invited me over to watch the Cubs-Giants game tonight. Wow. Unsolicited? Yes. Hey, Pete, what are you up to? I know this is random, but you're welcome to watch the Cubs game here if you don't have plans. Wow. Had you told her that the Cubs were playing tonight before I didn't, then? so yeah, you're... She's a big baseball fan. a baseball fan, fan before I... Yes. All right. Um, I will probably decline because I have to edit this podcast. Oh, come on. I'm sorry. Uh, all right, so bottom of the ninth. Last few segments here. Paul, say my name. Say my name, say my name. All right, our name this week is Chicken Wolf. He was a player in the late uh, 19th century. He played for the Louisville Eclipse and the St. Louis Browns. Um, made his big league debut in 1882. Over the course of his career, he batted 290, had 18 home runs, and 592 RBI. He was a super utility guy, played right field, first base, and shortstop. Um, he died in 1903, lived a fairly short life. Um, Chicken was uh, obviously a nickname. His real name was William Van Winkle Wolf, 
So obviously it would make sense that you would shorten that or condense that down into a nickname. He got the nickname Chicken. Um, legend has it because when he was a teenager, before a, uh, a game, um, his manager had told the team, don't need a heavy meal, it's hot out, we've got a big game, so he's something light. Uh, William Van Winkle Wolf decided uh, that that didn't apply to him and ate um, a stewed chicken and uh, didn't play well, had a bunch of errors that game. And uh, the team attributed it to the fact that he had eaten that stewed chicken. And so they called him Chicken Wolf after after that game, and it stuck. Uh, it was not uh, reported or written down whether he liked the nickname or not. I would imagine that it wasn't his favorite thing in the world, but that is just my speculation. When was he born? Uh, he was born in, I actually don't have that written down here. He made his debut in 1882. So I think okay. around 1860 or so. It's a pretty good life. 45, 50 years? Yeah, 43 years, I think. What do you think the life expectancy was? Um, maybe about 55 years. Okay. It's a good name. Uh, next up, we have my Yahoo Answer of the Week. Uh, so this question comes from Softball Chick. She says... I'm about to go to my brother's baseball game, and he told me to download some cool songs to play at his baseball game. Does anyone know of any? Please tell me a title and, if possible, who it is by. Thanks. So, Paul, before I give uh, some uh, some baseball songs that were mentioned in the answers, uh, do you have a, a favorite baseball song? Uh, is it Put Me In, Coach? Uh, Centerfield? Centerfield, yeah. That's your favorite? I mean, the seventh inning stretch, but not really. Yeah, I don't know too many. Uh, that opening day song, you play with the ears. Yep, uh, an instant classic. All right, so How about Jackie, Jack, see Jackie Robinson hit that Well, I, I wrote that down. Yeah, that's a great song. Uh, so, Take Me Out of the Ball Game was mentioned the most. Uh, center Field was also mentioned. It's by John Fogarty. Glory Days by Bruce Springsteen. Willie Mickey and the Duke by Terry Cashman. Jolton Joe DiMaggio. Uh, a, apparently a big baseball song. And uh, Did You See Jackie Robinson Hit That Ball by Buddy Johnson. That's a favorite of ours after we played it a couple weeks ago. Uh, the Cheap Seats by Alabama. And The Greatest by Kenny Rogers are all uh, apparently popular baseball songs. Uh, before we get to pick your team, uh, Paul, which which of the baseball songs should we play as our outro t- on this week's podcast? About, uh, I go um, The Greatest by Kenny Rogers, just because I've never heard it before. All right. We will we will do that. All right, pick your team. Paul, you had a very good week. Mariners went 5-1. and one. Uh, So you, you take a one-game lead. The Pirates, my pick, went 4-2. and two. So the overall standings are... You at 27 and 16, and I am 27 and 17. So I guess a half game, half game lead. I'm going with the Yankees this week. Okay. Yeah, they've been playing a little bit better. Yeah, they're. I think they're seven and two since Chapman came back. Okay. Did you look at the schedule? Uh, you know I don't look at the schedule. <laughs> it's really going to be sad if I can't beat you. Uh, my team is the Brewers. They play. 
the Atlanta Braves and Cincinnati Reds. So uh, taking a scheduled approach to it. Bring it on. Yep. Uh, for the podcast listener that doesn't know what we are doing, uh, the loser of this battle has to record Batter Up by himself to intro a podcast in the offseason. Uh, so that's that's the game. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Make sure to leave us a review there. It really helps get the word out to more people. You can send us emails at afootinthebox at gmail.com. That's afootinthebox at gmail.com. We'd love to uh, answer and talk about your email on our next podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at afootinthebox. Afootinthebox. Uh, we have 104 followers now. We're uh, pretty big time. And uh, lastly, you can check out our website at footinthebox.com. We have all our old episodes there of the podcast. And then uh, Paul and I each write from time to time. Uh, this weekend, we just posted uh, our trade offers from the Cubs and White Sox for Mike Trout. So if that interests you at all, go uh, go check footinthebox.com out. Paul, you got anything else? Nope. Just a reminder to keep a foot in the box. We will talk to you next week when Paul interviews several White Sox fans from the doubleheader. Little boy in a baseball hat Stands in the field with his ball and bat Says I am the greatest player of them all Puts his bat on his shoulder and he tosses up his ball And the ball goes up and the ball comes down Swings his bat all the way around the world's so still you can hear the sound The baseball falls to the ground Now the little boy doesn't say a word Picks up his ball, he is undeterred Says I am the greatest there has ever been Grits his teeth and he tries it again. And the ball goes up and the ball comes down, swings his bat all the way around. The world's so still you can hear the sound. The baseball falls to the ground.